Acts chapter 3. We will be looking at verses 11 through verse 26 today in the third chapter of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. There are, uh, the text will be on the screen. Um, there's also paperback Bibles in the pews uh, in front of you. If you look around, there should be one near you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that as our free gift to you uh, so that you can uh, read God's word for yourself, know the truth that is revealed in it. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. We will continue on this story that we began last week here in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 3, 11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to meet them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The power, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man, the man, this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our holy and righteous God that we now come today to worship, I pray that you would grant us your grace as we study your word today, as I preach the word, as we listen and hear and receive the word as it is delivered and preached. Lord, I pray that you would intercede for us. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and would Enlighten our eyes and our ears and our hearts, Lord, so that we might be made ready to hear and receive the word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and be with me as I speak, Lord, that I would speak not as uh, a man speaking only, but as one who speaks the very word of the Lord, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray 
that your grace would be among all and that you would be glorified in all that we do here this morning and going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, basketball, there are certain moments uh, in which basketball players can find themselves extremely embarrassed. There's a lot of embarrassing moments in basketball. Let me tell you what I mean. If you've played basketball, you can probably understand a few of these. There is not, uh, not much, there are a few things, but not much more embarrassing than going up for a layup and getting blocked, having the ball sent straight into the bleachers from some guy that's bigger than you. There's also uh, not much that's worse than if you are uh, doing your duty as a defender and you're down underneath the basket and the guy's coming down and you go up to defend him and he just straight dunks right on you, what we call being posterized. Pretty soon some, some kid's going to end up with a poster of you on the poster in his room going as the defender is severe, as the, uh, excuse me, as the offensive player is dunking it right in your face. It's, it's humiliating. But I would argue, and I've had a lot of experience with these humiliating moments, I would argue that there is very little, if anything, that is more embarrassing than the ankle breaker. When you're defending, and the guy's coming down with the ball, and he crosses you over, and your feet get all tangled up, and you trip over to the side. It's humiliating. It's that moment in basketball when the whole bleacher goes, oh, it's terrible, right? If you've ever been on the receiving end of that, you know how terrible it is. And if you've ever crossed someone over, I, don't, I never have, but if you have, you'll know how good it feels. It's humiliating to that person. But here's the thing about that. As cool a move as the crossover is, and, and as great as it is, not for the defender, but for the, for the offensive player to cross someone up in that way and do this really great move between the legs, behind the back, whatever it might be, and just completely shakes up this defender to where they even fall to the ground. It's a really cool moment. But it's a cool moment that is completely useless and completely deflated and completely pointless if after crossing someone over and breaking their ankles, you go for the step back jumper and completely airball. It's pointless at that point, right? The defender won still from his, from his behind on the floor. Or to go up for a layup and just completely miss the layup after completely crossing up this guy and making him trip all over himself. The crossover is cool. Breaking someone's ankles is cool, but it's utterly pointless if it doesn't result in the point of the game, and that is scoring buckets. It counts for nothing. In fact, it was completely pointless if you don't hit the basket, if you don't follow it up with scoring points. We looked last week at this story, this healing of the man at the temple. And it was a beautiful and amazing moment that we saw where Peter and John, as they are going into the temple, see this man who's crippled. And as we know, he's been crippled from birth. And, and by the power of Jesus' name, this man is healed through the words of Peter. And he takes him by the hand, he lifts him to his feet. And in this miraculous scene where after this guy is healed, we looked at last week, he goes, leaping into the temple. The thing is, though, if the story were to stop there, if Peter and John were to have gone and, and healed this man in the name of Jesus and then just gone on with their day and not said another word about it, not made another mention of it, or if, if Luke had recorded that and nothing else, 
then we might be left going, well, that was a really cool story, but what was the point? Now, thankfully, Peter doesn't leave us there, but as we'll see, he, he goes beyond the healing, beyond just this amazing moment to go on to use this moment, capitalize on it in order to preach this amazing sermon, in order to impact these people in the temple with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In reality, this healing served the purpose of setting the stage, preparing the hearts and the ears of these people for the sermon that Peter was about to give in the following verses. This miraculous healing, which brought all of this attention, prepared the people now to hear the word that Peter was about to give. And we see here the word that he gives in our text today, 11 and following. We see in in the first few verses, Peter is, is sort of recapping a few things. First of all, he, he recaps what happened to this lame man, where he says in verse 12, why do you wonder at this? Or do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? Peter sort of asks the question to the listeners, what do you think just happened? It's likely that these people here in the temple, after seeing this man who was lame from birth, were, were probably looking at this situation going, what kind of power do these men have? What kind of abilities do they have? I've heard of magicians. I've heard of sorcerers. Are these men sorcerers? Do they have some sort of divine power? Are they so holy that they have a sort of holy power, as he says? It is not by piety that we have done this. Peter makes the explanation and makes it clearly how exactly this healing was accomplished. And he starts by first and foremost saying, it was not by our power. It was not an our power that this man was healed. It was not our piety that made this man walk, but it was the power of another. It's an unfortunate, I think, rather revealing reality that so many so-called faith healers in our world today receive so much glory. And I say that it's revealing because what we see here from this story, what we see in Peter, is he just performed by the power of the Holy Spirit this amazing miracle. In the name of Jesus Christ, as Peter spoke, this man was healed. Peter had the opportunity here, if he were to so choose, to try and claim some glory for himself. And yet, what does Peter do? What do Peter and John do? They say, we are not the ones that deserve the praise. We are not the ones that deserve the glory for this. But so often when you see faith healers today, one of the things that is notable almost across the board about these faith healers is that they receive a lot of glory. They receive a lot of praise, a lot of accolade, and Indeed, it seems to a large extent they are quite happy to receive the glory and the praise. And when you begin to look a little closer at the reality of things, what you actually see is these so-called faith healers, while leaving lots and lots of people in their wake of destruction and of, of despair, they gain accolade, they gain glory, they gain status. That in and of itself is a picture of the fact that these people are not working in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever might be being done as they are working, I would argue much of it is just parlor tricks at best. 
But whatever's being done, it is not the work of the Holy Spirit. And these who are gaining such clout, such glory, who are being carried in on pedestals, who are receiving all this praise and honor and calling themselves apostles and prophets. And I can say this with confidence because of what Jesus himself says in John 16 as he's talking about the coming Holy Spirit. Peter says in John 16, 12 through 15, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I say, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What is Jesus saying here about the role of the Holy Spirit, about the job, about the objective of the Holy Spirit when he comes? The objective of the Holy Spirit is not to glorify men. In fact, the objective of the Holy Spirit is not to glorify himself. The purpose and objective of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. Jesus says in verse 14 of John 16, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So then when we see these various healings, these various miracles being done by these so-called faith healers, or by anyone who's claiming to do a work of the Holy Spirit, there's one simple test that we can do to test and determine whether or not this is indeed a work of God, a work of the Holy Spirit. The best test of any working of the movement of the Spirit is to ask the question, is this pointing to Christ? Is this magnifying and glorifying Christ? If the answer to that question is no, then we can pretty safely say, pretty safely determine that this is not a work of the Holy Spirit. This is not a work of God, but a work of something else. I think we can also take this as we begin to think about the purpose of the Holy Spirit and take this even down to a more personal level, level for us as believers. If we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, if he dwells within us now, ought not our lives reflect the glory of Christ? Ought it not be our purpose to declare the glory and bring magnitude to Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. And for many of us, when we consider our lives, when we consider how we live on a day-to-day -day basis, we sometimes find it very difficult asking ourselves this question, am I glorifying Christ in my life? Is that my heart's desire to bring him praise and honor and glory in all that I say and in all that I do? That is what the Holy Spirit will work in us to do. Now, as we know, though dwelt and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are still battling against the flesh here in this life. And there will always be days, there will always be moments, there will always be seasons of our life when our selfishness takes over, when our pride creeps in, when uh, the Lord is not glorified in our life the way he ought. But certainly this ought to be our desire and our prayer that the Holy Spirit would have his way and that Christ would be glorified in our lives and that we, like John the Baptist, will say, he must increase and I must decrease. This was the Prayer. This was the hope of Peter and John here today as, as they began to 
lay out for the people what has been done. And then they go on in verse 13 through 15 as Peter speaks, goes on to give this rather serious indictment upon them, the similar thing that he told them back, that he told the people back in chapter two. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. It's interesting to me that Peter uses these titles of of God. What he's making the point to do and to say to his Jewish listeners, listeners is he is making the point to them, the God you serve, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. These were titles, these were names for God that these people were familiar with, that they knew. Peter's making it absolutely undeniably clear to them that I am talking about the one true God whom you claim to serve, sent and glorified his servant Jesus, and you handed him over. You denied him. This is a serious indictment that he gives to these people and rather harsh words we must, must admit as he's preaching to them. And he goes on to say this, it gets even, even more severe. He says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Here we see this picture that he gives where he says in verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. This is a serious accusation that Peter has made to them. That Jesus was the servant of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the one who was sent. He was the holy one. He was the righteous one, the one that was promised to come and redeem God's people. And what did you do with him? You hung him on a cross. You denied him. You demanded that a murderer be given over to you rather than the holy and righteous one. And as Peter is declaring this to the people, he is making this statement that that they preferred Barabbas. If you remember the story, as Pilate said, I will release one of these men to you. Would you rather me release Jesus or Barabbas? And the people cry out, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. This murderer, this zealot, this criminal, the worst of the worst, was now released, free to go, and the only righteous one who ever lived was condemned. Was condemned to death, not just a death, but a death on the cross. The death of a murderer, the death of a criminal. But what we see in this picture is we think about what took place, what happened with Barabbas and Jesus. As you have one standing here, a murderer, a criminal, guilty, and no one is disputing his guilt. And then you have Jesus, the righteous one, the holy, the perfect, spotless lamb. And the amazing thing about this story is that what we see in this picture is we see a picture of what we call the great exchange in the gospel. Because we, as we, can, as we reflect on our lives, as we think about who we are, as we think about our sin, we rightly ought to come to the conclusion that if we are represented by anyone in this story, it is Barabbas. We are guilty. We are rebels against God. We are sinful from birth. 
And what we deserve, just like Barabbas, is condemnation, death, destruction. We deserve the punishment that we are due, the wrath of God upon us. And yet, what is the reality of those who trust in Jesus Christ by faith? Christ dies in our stead. We, as the criminal, are released, freed from our charges, freed from the condemnation that we deserve, because Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one, took it on our behalf. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Let us not miss this picture of the gospel or think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are Barabbas in this story. In the gospel, we are the criminal. We are the guilty one. And we are set free because Christ took our place, the holy one. And as we know about the great exchange, it gets even greater that he took our sin upon us. And as we talked about during our declaration of pardon, grants us, gives us, imputes us his righteousness so that we now stand before God, not just freed from our sin, but declared righteous and able to come before God. Access to God has been granted to us through Christ Jesus and his shed blood. This picture of the gospel is is placed in here. And though Peter uses this example in order to show these men that they are condemned, let us not miss this picture of the gospel found in Barabbas, the criminal who was set free. And then finally in verse 16, we see that it is by his name, by Jesus' name, that this man was made whole. We saw this point last week previously as as we looked and saw how this man was healed and and upon what name this man was healed. He was healed in the name of Jesus Christ. And now Peter is making that point all the more. He says, this Jesus, the servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the holy, the righteous one, the one whom you killed and God raised from the dead. It is in his name, faith in his name, that this man was made whole. It is through Jesus that this man has been given perfect health in the presence of you all. There are some questions, some debate in regards to whether or not it was the faith of the man who was healed or whether or not it was the faith of Peter and John here that's being discussed when he says that it was by faith in his name that this man was made strong. And we could debate the the merits of either side. And and certainly I think there are cases in scripture where we see some who are healed even though we don't necessarily see a saving faith in them. But I would argue that what we really see throughout the scenario of the healing of this man is that we see faith on both sides. I would argue this man would demonstrated his faith in the Lord, his faith in Christ Jesus in a couple ways. First of all, the fact that as he was given this command, he was willing to obey it. He was willing to obey this command, which he had no reason to believe would work, to get up and walk. This man crippled from birth and upon this command, takes Peter's hand and stands up and walks. And after that, what do we see? We certainly see the results of his faith as he is leaping for joy and as he is praising God for what he has done. 
He's not praising Peter. He's not praising John. But he's praising God for what he has done in him. But we also see faith on the part of Peter and John. It was definitely, excuse me, definitely, certainly an act of faith to stop, to see this man as directed by the Holy Spirit and to command this man to walk. That takes a great deal of faith. Has anyone in here recently told any crippled people to walk? Not me. And guess what? I'm not about to anytime soon. There's a great act of faith and direction of the Holy Spirit on the part of both here. We see here the reality. And this is sort of a microcosm, a a small statement of what is true on a broad scale that it is by faith in Jesus' name that healing comes. What we also see as we move down to the next section in our text, as we have have recalled what has happened now with this man as he has been healed and what these Jews did to Jesus, what we continue to see as we read through our text is we see the providential work of God in redemption. We see the providence of God in redemption on full display in these verses. As we get down to verse 17, we see where he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But, God, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. After Peter has just given them this scathing condemnation, this indictment that you killed the Messiah, he goes on to say, but this was foretold by the mouth of the prophets. God foretold that this would happen, that Christ would suffer, and thus he fulfilled it. This was all a part of God's preordained plan of salvation, that Christ would come, not only that he would come, but that he would suffer and that he would die for our sins. Isaiah 53 lays out for us pretty clearly the idea that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant. And so that, along with other prophecies, have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In verse 17, he says something interesting, though, where he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. What does Peter mean when he says, I know that you acted in ignorance? Peter is not seeking to excuse their sin in any way. The claim that Peter is seeking to make here is not that your sin will not be held against you, that you will not have to give an account for your wickedness, for your betrayal, for your handing over of Christ. Peter's not trying to say that their sin is excused because of their ignorance, but rather that their sin does not exempt them from forgiveness. The fact of the matter is that these men, along with all people who were born into this world, are born into sin. Each and every one of us is born in a sort of state of ignorance just as these men were. Their hearts were hardened. Their eyes were darkened by their sin. David says in the Psalms, in sin did my mother conceive me. All of us are born in a state of wickedness, in a state of darkened eyes and darkened hearts, just like these men. I would argue that if these men truly grasped, truly understood the gravity of what they were doing, that this was the very Son of God, that Yahweh himself had sent to be the Messiah, 
if they truly understood that and the ramifications of that, if their eyes had been truly opened, they would not have done this. I don't think. But they, in their ignorance, in their sin, in their darkened heart, with blinded eyes, acted in this way. Each and every one of us is born into this state of sinfulness. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. This is why each and every one of us knows that we need the Holy Spirit, we need the Lord to intervene into our lives to open our eyes to the gospel. This is why it's, it is the case that many people can hear the gospel rightly proclaimed and yet not believe. It's not because the gospel isn't true. It's not always because the gospel hasn't been proclaimed rightly and truly. It's because sinners have their eyes darkened and their hearts hardened. And apart from the work of the Lord, reaching into their hearts and their lives and softening them, they will not believe. None of us in here can take credit for our faith in Jesus Christ, for our belief in the gospel. It is not the case for any of us that we were just so much smarter than those other people who heard the same gospel but didn't believe. We are so much smarter than them, we understood it and believed it. None of us can say that. None of us can take credit for our belief. It is solely a work of God to open our eyes, to take out, as he says in Ezekiel, our heart of stone and to place in us a heart of flesh so that we would believe. And what Peter is saying to these men is he says, you have acted in ignorance. He's not saying that your sin is excused. You won't be held account for your sin. What he's saying is just like every sinner on the planet, you too can have your heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh planted in it. You too can find grace and mercy in Christ Jesus, even though you killed this very Christ on the cross. Grace is extended even to you. Brother or sister in here today, if, if you are wondering if grace is extended to you, the answer is yes. Grace has been extended to the very murderers of Jesus Christ. There is not a single person in this world who has done anything to exempt themselves from the grace of God and Christ Jesus, not even his very murderers. The prophecies have been fulfilled. We see the providence of God all the more as he continues on explaining to them how the prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In 22, he points out what Moses says. Moses says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. The point that Peter is trying to make here and the point that he also made in chapter two and as he will continue to make throughout his ministry is that the Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament and that this very Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come. That the fulfillment of these prophecies has come and he has secured the victory for his people. He reminds them of what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that the Lord would raise up a prophet like himself from among them. And church family, for the, the Jews, a prophet like Moses is a big deal as it is for us. Moses was the man, right? He was the one through whom the law was given. There are, there's no one in Jewish history who was more revealed, more revered than Moses. So what we see then is that if Jesus Christ has come and he, has, he is a prophet like Moses, this is a big deal. And indeed, he is a prophet like Moses. 
What is it that Moses did for his people? It was he that God used to redeem the people, wasn't it? It was Moses who God chose to use to lead the people out of Egypt, Egypt through the Red Sea and to the promised land. Moses was the redeeming prophet of the Old Testament who the Lord used to redeem his people. Is that not what Christ is for us? That he is like Moses and that he has redeemed his people out of bondage, out of slavery, into life? In fact, the writer of Hebrews would go even further to say more than just he is a prophet like Moses, but to say that he is greater than Moses. He is a better Moses. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 3 and following, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Jesus has come as the new and better Moses, the one who has not just redeemed his people out of bondage to a government, not just redeemed his people out of bondage in a specific land, but redeemed us out of our bondage to our sin, the very sin that darkened the heart of the murderers of Jesus, the very sin that causes us to deserve God's wrath. He has come to redeem us out of it. Jesus has come, and like Moses, is a better prophet. Jesus has come to fulfill the three major roles found in the Old Testament. The role of prophet, the role of priest, and the role of king. And we get a picture here of how he does these things better than any other. How he perfectly fulfills his role as prophet. And in other times we see how he perfectly fulfills his role as priest in the book of Hebrews and how he perfectly fulfills this role of king, of authority, of Lord over his people. Jesus Christ has come to redeem us, but he has come to redeem us from far more than just a people group, but from our sin. You see, the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They knew that a Messiah was to come, but the Messiah they were looking for, in their mind, they had a particular picture of what he was going to do. He was going to come and was going to free them from bondage to the Romans. He was going to free them, take them back to the promised land. It was going to be just like in Exodus, just like the people under Moses. They were going to be liberated here on earth in a physical, real sense that they were going to see a conquering king come to redeem them from their authoritarian government. But that's not what Jesus came as, is it? He came, as Isaiah prophesied, as a suffering servant, as a lamb who was slain. But the truth is, though Jesus is a conquering Messiah, he is a victor over the enemy. He has destroyed our enemy. He has redeemed his people. The real problem for the Jews here and, and for many Jews still today is that they have a wrong view of who the enemy is. You see, the enemy is not any government. The enemy is not any 
uh, place that has been taken away from us, the enemy is our sin. And it is this enemy that Christ has come and secured the victory over. This is the victorious Christ that we see being raised from the dead. And it is this same victorious Christ that we will see one day return. One day return, much like the Jews expected him to come in the first place. He will return to bring all things into subjection unto himself. Jesus is the victorious champion. champion. He is our liberator, our conqueror. The thing is, he liberates us, he conquers for us, the enemy of our sin and death that sin brings. One day Christ will return and there will be no doubt about his conquering, about his victory over the enemy. That's why there's a warning given here in verse 23. As Peter says, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And this is the reality. One day Christ is coming, and when he comes, he is going to bring the sword. Judgment will come along with him. And all of those who reject Christ's words, who reject him as the new and better Moses and the new and better David, all who refuse to listen to his words, when he comes, will face his judgment. They will be destroyed. This is why the warning is so important for us to heed, that we heed, listen to the words of Christ. And in addition, what we see here in the words of Peter is the call to respond and the grace extended. In verse 19 and through 21, Peter calls his listeners to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ. And this for us is the most important part of this sermon. In verse 19 and following, he says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He says, Repent therefore, turn back, and your sins will be blotted out. He just spoke some of the harshest words anyone could ever speak to another person just a few verses earlier. He says, you know God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the one you claim to love, the God of our fathers? Yeah, he sent his servant Jesus, and he was the holy one, the righteous one, and you killed him. You murdered him and asked for Barabbas to be turned over instead. You betrayed him. You are guilty. These are harsh, harsh words. Words that when people say them today, whether from the pulpit or on the street or in conversation, people go, oh man, geez, simmer down. You don't have to be so mean. You don't have to be so forceful. We don't need a fire and brimstone sermon. But the reality is, for those who reject Christ, fire and brimstone is theirs. They need to know. They need to hear the warning. They need to hear the reality of their guilt but what they also need and what we must give them as well is what Peter gives his hearers here. We must give them the grace of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Even as guilty as these men were, Peter extends the offer of grace to them found in Christ. He says, repent. Turn back from your sins that your sins may be blotted out. He calls them to repent, to turn to Christ 
and be forgiven. Again, I ask you what I've already asked. What is it that Christ won't forgive in you? What sin is there that won't be blotted out and forgiven in Christ Jesus? There is none, not even the murder of the Messiah. And in repenting, in turning back, having our sins blotted out, what we see is that the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. We spoke last week of the prophet found in Isaiah, the prophecy found in Isaiah that streams of water will flow forth into the desert. Here again we see the dam beginning to break, water beginning to flow, life beginning to come. The beginning stage of this stages of this is found here that refreshing water for the desert is found in Christ Jesus if we trust in him by faith. If we turn from our sin, trust in Christ Jesus for salvation, his grace is ours and our sins are blotted out and his righteousness is granted to us and though we are the murderer like Barabbas, we are guilty, we are sinners, we deserve crucifixion, we are forgiven and set free all of our crimes, all of our accusations, all of them dismissed from us and placed on Christ, and he takes the punishment that we deserve. This is the gospel message that Peter gives to these people. He says, look, this man that you just saw healed was not by our power. It was not by our power that this man is made able to walk, nor our piety. It is by the power of the Messiah. You know the Messiah that you killed, that you crucified? Yeah, God raised him from the dead, and it is by his power that this man has been made to walk. But guess what? He doesn't just do legs. He does hearts. He heals sinners. The very disease that has plagued humanity from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve first sinned. The curse of sin that has been oppressing us, that has been upon us ever since that moment. Healing from that is found in the name of Jesus Christ. By faith in his name, just like this man, we are made whole. If you've been made whole in Christ Jesus today, let us rejoice. I would call you again to look back at the reaction of this man. Leaping for joy, praising God for what he has done. This man who received new legs in the name of Jesus Christ had reason to rejoice. Church family, if we have been given new life in Christ, been healed of the disease of sin, and been forgiven of the, and been removed from the wrath of God that we deserve, we have all the more reason to rejoice, to leap for joy, to celebrate what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. But the reality still remains. For those who reject Christ, for those who refuse to believe, who refuse to turn from their sin and trust in Christ by faith, I'll remind you the same thing that he reminds us of, that he is coming again. All those who reject the words, who do not listen to this prophet, shall be destroyed from the people. If you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, if you are currently right now rejecting the words of the prophet, the one who's greater than Moses, then I want to extend this warning to you that Christ is coming again. And when he does, all who reject him will be destroyed. Be counted among those who receive and experience his refreshment, who have had their sins blotted out by Jesus Christ and had his righteousness counted to them. All it takes is to trust in Christ by faith, repent of your sin, and rely on him for salvation. Believe that when he died on the cross, he took your sin for you, 
and granted you his righteousness. Let's pray.